Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Phil, I'm going to see if you can get this right. No, brother. What is one of my favorite things along the shoreline that I have sometimes dragged you to find? Lighthouses. Exactly. Right. So I'm excited because we have someone who is smart enough, wise enough to have chosen a lighthouse as their symbol for the work they do. Well, that's true. But do you know that if you follow on Instagram, hashtag lighthouses, that you get lighthouses from all over the world, pics? Do you this much post- time on your life? Well, you know, when you're doing that scroll thing, so mm-hmm. I, once in a while I just zone out and scroll. But that's, and I find a beautiful picture of a lighthouse, and I love to post it in my Instagram Yeah, story. I don't like that, though, because you haven't seen it. You should really only be posting oh, ones that, that you took the picture whose of. Whose rule is that? Mine? Well, that's your rule, then. So you can post pictures only of the lighthouses you've seen. I will post lighthouses from around the world. Hey, Trey, how are you? Phil, Sandy, good morning. Hi. So what we're talking about, we have Trey Laird here. Good, very good. I know. That's a hard. It's British. It's a little hard. Scottish. 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 Trey Laird. And how did you come up with the lighthouse? So I was sitting in uh, a meeting, and um, a guy shared that in his mind um, he was either the recovery was either moving towards a drink or away from a drink mm-hmm. or towards the light or away from the light. Yeah. And I thought, lighthouse. Wow. You know, being that beacon of light. Mm-hmm. And um, that was it. You know, I, I sort of uh, thought that it was um, an opportunity and I wasn't even looking for a name at that point. But, it you know, came up a couple months later as I was talking to some um, some other guys about you know, starting this project, and that's when it came back into my head that what he had said, moving towards the light or away from the light. What's the thumbnail version of your project? Because we'll get into it in sure. more detail, I'm sure. So, so the the lighthouse is 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 um, sober living for men and women. We have two separate houses, gender specific in New Canaan, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's um, it's a, it's our own little recovery community, yeah. and it um, it, it was it came out of the out of my own story, which was that I, when I was in treatment, my wife invited me not to move home, and I had nowhere to go. <laughs> invited me not to move. I love home. that. What you invited me not to come back when I left for the Appalachian Trail <laughs> for thirty days. Uh, Let's okay. keep it real. All right. <laughs> so um, that's. That's what we've been working on for five and a half years. I know. It's yeah. pretty cool, too. Yeah, definitely cool. So we like to talk uh, with our guests about their recovery story, learn a little bit about that. What's your earliest memory? Um, throwing a ball around with my father, you know, at home in our, uh, at our where we lived. And I grew up I was, as a young kid in New Canaan. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, earliest you were memory. Born and raised in New Canaan? Mm, not born, uh, but born. raised from kindergarten through sixth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, this is. And born where? Um, Philadelphia. Really? Yeah. Philadelphia. I lived in New Jersey for a period of time. I, when I was born, my dad was in Vietnam. Uh, my mom lived with my dad's mom, so my Grammy, uh, for the first six, five months until he returned. And then we lived in Summit, New Jersey for a while. Hmm. Um, and then moved to New Canaan. Hmm. And so I just, this past January, moved back to New Canaan uh-huh. with, with my wife and little kids. And um, so it was, I mean, thinking 40 years after we moved away, I moved away, coming home, and yeah. I literally lived two houses down from where I lived as a little kid. That's crazy. <laughs> That'd be like me moving back to Vernon Street. Yeah. Right. But I've lived in Manchester for most of my life now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Come, so it feels like coming home. Yeah. And, um, you know, New Canaan is is home, and, and it's, you know, it's where I got sober. Um Back in 2008, I was addicted to Oxycontin. I was doing cocaine every day. I was drinking every day, um, holding down a job, working in the city on a trading desk, and um, uh, you know, just dying slowly until I, I found myself at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, and that's where that's where the recovery journey started. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, so now to be able to have and build and support the recovery community in New Canaan, which helped me immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, early on is great. It's mm-hmm. it's you know that's some that's some higher power stuff. Putting moving the pieces around the chessboard it certainly wasn't my plan at all. <laughs> so when you said early memory throwing a ball, was that a baseball? Yep. You remember that? Huh? Yeah. Were you yep. a baseball player as a kid? I was an athlete. I played tons of sports. Baseball was not what, what I excelled at. What was your favorite? And what did you excel at? Uh, my favorite was soccer. Um, I played a lot of soccer, but I excelled at swimming. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for a guy that loves big teams and the and the atmosphere of, mm-hmm. of team sports, it was kind of a bummer to be a good swimmer because mm-hmm. it's so isolating and yeah. so lonely. Um, it's tough to get support from your teammates when you can't hear them screaming and yelling. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that's that's what I uh, I was a good swimmer and I went to college to swim. And, what were your events? Uh, Hunter butterfly. Wow. Oh, I love the watching the butterfly. We have well, swimmers. In yeah, our... yeah, I know. You have swimmers and soccer players. Yeah, we do. And Matthew was uh, not at your level, but he, he just, could... the, just that you can move through the water with a butterfly is it's such a an athletic stroke, athletic move to yeah, be able to do that. I have that. no idea why I was good at it. I, 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 I was. And um, the, the problem... <laughs> Was that there is no hunter butterfly in college? It's two hundred. Oh. And so once I got to college, I was not nearly as good as I was in high school. And mm-hmm. um, and then there was that pull of the fraternity basement. And um, after one year, I quit. And yeah. It was probably the one of the biggest regrets in my life to wow. to quit to give up on college sports because I was just I, I identified as an athlete so much, and in a split second, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I'm no longer an athlete. Where'd you go to school? To Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, um, we just uh, recently recorded a podcast about our collegiate experiences, and one of the parts that I left out was um, my freshman year, which my first semester 
freshman was my best semester. <laughs> and there's still a lot of guilt and shame about that. But I walked on the UConn tennis team and made it. Cool. And actually uh, played enough to letter uh, my first season. And then I quit. Yeah. And you know where I quit? So I could go play, be the practice person for the girls tennis team. <laughs> so I did make some good decisions. No, you don't. Priorities. Yeah. <laughs> it was priorities. Yeah. But I was a, I, I just, there was no pressure. And the girls coach loved me because I could give them a real good game. Sure. And so we just, I didn't have to show up every day either. So that was pretty cool. Helpful, yeah. I yeah. quit. Well, I quit the swim team, and I think I probably walked right into the fraternity basement, literally from the, it was across the street. Well, Dartmouth was a, probably a really good swim team. Um, it they? was the worst in the Ivy League. Uh, it was well. the worst in Division. <laughs> yeah. So so we were you but, know D one, but not um, but, not competitive. And um, but even if we had been a very competitive team, I don't think I would. I don't think I would have stayed because I was no longer. You know the the star. Yeah. I was I was down the bench. I was the third guy in in, in the two hundred fly, and mm-hmm. you know it was. It Did was, they have a shorter version of the fly too? Only in relays. Wow. Yeah. So it was two hundred or nothing. <laughs> That's strange, I think. But yeah. so before we talk about the fraternity, which I definitely want to get to, what what was it between you know growing up? What was life like? What was your house like? Yeah, and family. I, are you? Do you have siblings? We've yeah. talked to a lot. We've talked to a lot of people, and this first time I heard about a dad being in Vietnam. Did that influence or affect anything for you as a kid that you're aware of? Not for me, um, yeah. but but um, because my dad doesn't identify as a veteran. Really, um, mm-hmm. he he went because he was you know it was the draft and yeah. and it was the right thing to do. But he he doesn't identify as a military guy, mm. um, so that was never part of. You know what I knew, right. knew him as. Um, <laughs> you know, to your question, Sandy, I, I we could do a, a whole separate podcast on my family <laughs> and um, <laughs> my. Uh, I have, I have, I have um, eleven siblings. Um, none of them. Sorry, just one of them. My sister Wait, from the same parents. How many wow. did you say? Eleven, I think. You Between, think? Yeah, I, I, I have to. I have to. I need a whiteboard. <laughs> My my father's been married three times. Uh, uh-huh. He's had two kids with each wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother's been married twice. Um, she's had two kids with each husband. Her second husband had three children, who are my stepbrothers and sisters. Um, and this uh, is the Brady Bunch on steroids, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> my mom and dad split up when I was eight, um, and so um, dad moved into Manhattan. And and mom and and my sister and I lived in a smaller house in New Canaan, until she met a guy um, who lived in Sweden, and so uh, middle of sixth grade, I came home one day and uh, my mother told my sister and I, "Hey, great news, we're moving to Sweden," and I didn't think that was such great <laughs> I news. Bet you did. <laughs> yeah. Great news, we're moving to Sweden. Yeah. So um, we moved to Sweden. In so the you moved. Sixth grade. Yeah, you did. Yep. And, wow. And um, moved in with my stepfather and his three kids, who were my stepsister was a year older, another stepsister a year younger, and a stepbrother three years younger. Mm-hmm. My sister and I. So there was five kids all wow. of a sudden. Um, and and part of the agreement with my dad was that my sister and I would fly back to Manhattan uh, at least once every two months. To see him and it's a big trip. Yeah, 
and so my sister is three years younger than me, so I was, you know, 12, she was nine, and we got very experienced with um, traveling internationally um, and back and forth, um, which, which uh, yeah, the whole, the whole, that, that everything, what that did for me as a kid was, was, was made me realize that I was not in control of my own life, that mm-hmm. I, I, you know, decisions were being made for me um, that would affect me greatly. And um, it was, uh, it was, it made me uncomfortable. You know, wow. it made me uncomfortable. Yeah. I got, I got, my sister and I went to a Swedish public school where no, no one, they taught English, but none of the kids spoke English. Mm-hmm. I think that was where my identification as an athlete kicked in because I could hold my own on the soccer field with these Swedish boys and they they accepted me and embraced me because I actually made their team better mm-hmm. and so I was part of that crew even and I learned the language very quickly so I was probably fluent in Swedish in three four months wow um, which happens as a kid you yeah. just throw yourself on the soccer field and into a classroom and that's immersion right, right. real immersion so I lived in Sweden for so 18 months so what position did you play right wing Really? Yeah. Give me the space out on the right side, and I can I can you, run fast, and I can out, I can outrun people. Yeah, yeah. and then just cross the ball. All right. Yeah. Um, love she always it. said that very quickly, but you know, there's not there not, aren't any more right wings in soccer though. No. <laughs> <laughs> you dated yourself yeah, a little totally, bit. Totally. <laughs> You'd probably be a right back now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after 18 months. Um, I moved to the city, to Manhattan with my dad. Mm-hmm. And um, talk about another really huge cultural change. Like I, in Sweden, we lived in a small farm town, a population of a thousand. And so I moved to Manhattan to, um, yeah. <laughs> population of 10 billion. Exactly, exactly. Oh my um, and my father had, you know, remarried, two more kids. So there's little babies in the house. Mm-hmm. I went to private school. Um, you know, I was the strength. I was so your dad must have done really well business wise, or my dad was a Wall Street in, uh, investment banker, yeah. um, and uh, did well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they had multiple families, like right? That he was yes, supporting. yes. So yes, yeah. so so he he was um, he did he did well. I will say that, that one of the um, one of the moments in my life that uh, has affected me greatly was when I was 16, my stepmother woke me up in the middle of the night and said, we have to take your father to the hospital. And um, I remember we were living on West 11th in the village and St. Vincent's was a block up and just, my father was, um, I was literally, you know, I was 16, he was, you know, six feet, big guy. And, and, and so I was helping my stepmother walk him down to St. Vincent's Hospital where they admitted him and he eventually ended up spending I think it was 30 or 60 days at Columbia Presbyterian. The diagnosis was manic, de- manic depression. Um, and so this was 1986. So, you know, not a lot, a lot less was known about mental health and, mm-hmm. and, and manic depression. We now know it as bipolar. Um, but, uh, you know, that was another um, event for me that, that was my awakening to mental illness. It was also another. Uh, indication that I better figure out how to take care of myself because, you know, my parents aren't, might not be there for me. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about how it manifested in your dad and what you knew at the time. Why did, why did he have to go to the hospital on this day? What happened? 
So part of it was was just you know the, the genetic the gene right again mm-hmm. he he didn't know but I had learned through conversations with his mother my grandmother that you know it it had probably been there in my grandfather as well as well as his brother so um, in my dad he couldn't sleep he was up at all hours he was just drinking cranberry and soda um, he wasn't he didn't have any substance abuse issues um, but he was. Um, manic as well as depressed he mm-hmm. was going through a tough he had just started a new business he'd broken out on him on his own and it was also you know right before the crash of 87 um and so I, I didn't realize it obviously as a kid but there was major financial strain and um uh and you know panic on on his part mm. um that that you know got him to a point where he was, you know, had suicidal ideation and, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was from that point on and, 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 you know, he certainly recovered and and has recovered. Mm -hmm. Um, I followed in his footsteps to wall street. Obviously Mm -hmm. I I wanted to be part of that culture, part of that, you know, put a suit and tie on and go to work. I remember going to my dad's office and, um, you know, he had, he had his own office like, like this, but in the middle of the, um, the floor was this big glassed-in area um, with about 20, 30 people sitting in there. They looked like they were standing up and they were yelling at each other. You couldn't hear anything because of the glass. But I was like, what's going on in there? Like the movie. Exactly. <laughs> and my dad said, that's the trading desk. And I was like, that's what you I want to like do. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Yeah. Um, wow. And so it was uh, It was appealing Um because it, you know what it looked like to me? It looked to me like a team. It looked mm-hmm. to me like uh, like, like a group of people look, working towards, um, you know, a common goal. And my dad was in an office reading books and, and <laughs> writing. And those yeah. were not two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be on the phone. I wanted to be yelling and screaming and, um, and then going out to the bar afterward. I didn't know that, that at the time, <laughs> but <laughs> mom still lives in Sweden. Does she? Yeah. And we and, can, yeah. And, and with the same... Husband, yeah, and two and two and two. Uh, she had two daughters with him, oh, so wow. I have two half sisters. Uh-huh. Um, and what is uh, what did he do in Sweden, or what did they? He was work? a um, he was an entrepreneur. He he really? um, yeah he was he had some restaurants. He had a catering business. He um, kind of did a lot of different things, but mostly on, you know on his own. And, and he was a big athlete as well. Um, he was a volleyball player, tennis player, soccer player. You wow. know, so a lot of outdoor stuff. You would like that. You would like him. He's. Well, a, I'd like Sweden. I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm Swedish. I know you are. <laughs> In fact, it's interesting. They, he was a member and a, and a leader of this this club called the Frisk Friskporter Club, mm-hmm. which um, means fresh sports, I guess. Friskporter, mm-hmm. and they had a they had a. Um, a campsite up near Stockholm, outside Stockholm, where everybody would gather for midsummer, and then, uh, and that was like a you know a, a gathering of maybe I'm thinking 500 people, and then once a year they had a a camp right where they would switch it around different places in the country, and that you would come and you would uh, everybody would commune with each other and camp out in RVs or tents, and the whole week long was all about sports, and you would represent your region. So we were like, you know, southeastern Sweden, and there would be northern Sweden, and and you have to boy in Stockholm, and um, and the 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 common thread for this club was that nobody drank or did drugs. 
there was no substances, and that was sort of the theme. And, and we, I think, you know, maybe I was too young to talk about it. I didn't remember there being any meetings about it there. But that right. was just, you know, he didn't he didn't drink or do drugs, and um, that was just the way that this whole Frisport Club, uh, you know, carried. Would they say they're in recovery, or is it just a cultural thing? Cultural thing. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I, I actually straight edge again. No. Yeah, <laughs> you know about straight edge? No, no. Well, I just learned it's this whole sober culture back. Yeah, we had a kid. We had a kid. Well, he is an emergency department recovery coach that was talking about growing up straight edge, which was you were very aggressive about your sobriety mm. with other people. You know, so and punk all, music. And they like the, <laughs> yeah, the punk mat music. They had like triple X was there. They got tattoos all over their body about being so, but anyway. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> the, the Sweden straight edge is a lot more tame, I think, but it's pretty. So cool. when did when did you start? Did you start before you uh, became an adult? Start Drinking, what? using drugs. Um, high school. High school. Mm-hmm. Um, but more just again because if the team, if all the guys on the team were getting together and and they were having beers, then I was going to be part of the team mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know we could have been playing checkers and i would have been doing that whatever it was i just want to be part of the team yeah um i didn't view it as a problem um i didn't i also didn't i could take it or leave it you know mm-hmm. if the guys weren't having beers and i wouldn't either mm-hmm. um but it was new york city in in the 80s and there was a lot of um there's a lot of stuff happening around and and so it was more often than not that that um there was drugs or alcohol at the parties that we were, or mm-hmm. the places that I was at. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated. You said this being part of the team, like, several times. And so you have me spinning about, thinking about what it means to me. And I don't think I've ever really explored how important that is to me. And maybe that one of the reasons I... I dove into coaching when my kids were because I was part of a team. I was the coach, but I was still part of a team. And a lot of times here at CCAR, they talk about this being a family. And I say, no, 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 no. I always say, and I let them say if that's what they choose to do, but I prefer to say this is a team Um, because that has a stronger connotation for me that You've joined a team, you're purposeful about a team, you've made a team, and we're all in this together. And I know you talk about your Lighthouse team in the same way. And what do you think, and I don't, do you have that same connection to team? No. So what do you think it is about, is it a male thing? Maybe, maybe not, but what is it, what is that, what is that, you know, the... I can't think of the right word. But the Association with the team. Yeah, why, why is that so powerful for you and I think for me as well? What is that? I think for me it's the idea that I don't have to be alone, that I have a crew. A that connection. I, that I have a crew, right? Yeah. Like, like who am I going to – again, what my, chi- my childhood, I don't want to overplay it, but like it, I, I, there was times in my childhood where um, it was became very apparent that like, you know, I, I was I may not be taken care of and and mm-hmm. I may not be um, supported mm-hmm. and my identify my my thought as a team being a teammate and being a team member 
uh, is that that you know there's unconditional support. Right. You know, I got your back. Right. How can I help you? And that and that essence is um, what drives gang affiliation. Sure. It's the, it's the same thing. It's that I got your back. Yep. No matter what. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Brothers in arms, if you will. And 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 so my you know you, the, going into my fraternity in college was a was a big move a big um it was a very important institution in my life because it you know I left I left home I I I was so excited to leave my home in New York City get out of New York get away from my my family and 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 so I you know joined this fraternity and um, yes, there were drugs and alcohol around, but what I really liked was that you know we were we were brothers. Mm-hmm. We were a fellowship of brothers up in the New Hampshire woods. Exactly, uh, and and right and next so to the Appalachian Trail. I I made such great friends, mm-hmm. um, and still have such good friends. From yeah, that I was going to ask period. you that. I'm, my dad was part of a uh, fraternity at Lehigh, and he's eighty-seven, and he still knows guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm listen. I'm going to California in a month with <laughs> seven or eight guys from my fraternity. You know, all together, we enjoy each other's company. We What's the name of your fraternity? Alpha Delta. So it was the original Animal House. The guy who wrote the the screenplay Animal House was a AD at Dartmouth. <laughs> Come so, on, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> was he there when you were? No, much older. <laughs> he, he was like sixty and sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so we had you know a great big house, and uh, I lived in the fraternity for a couple of years, and you know my team was all of the fraternity guys. You know, once I left the swim team and mm-hmm. didn't have that community to, to as my team anymore, it was it was really um, the the guys in the house. And would you study at school? I majored in government, but you know I was not a strong student. Um, I, yeah, uh, but you're a really smart man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I did know that, you know, after college, I wanted to go um, be on that trading desk. Yeah. And so um, I did. I went from pretty much right from Hanover to Manhattan to start work. So tell us, uh, um, what's a trading desk? What do you do there? Sure. So when I started in 1993, it was, you know, um, a, you know everybody's got a bunch of computer screens, a couple of different phones you know, lots of different phone lines. I can push this button and call that client. I can push that button and call that client. Um, you know, you're not dialing. It takes too much time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was exciting because, you know, you're watching the market move. You've got TVs all over the place because world events are going to affect stock and bond prices, and you need to know as soon as possible what's happening. So when you call a client, you're getting them to either buy or sell some uh, stock? Yep. Mm-hmm. Or bonds, or maybe they're calling you because they, you know, say, "Hey, Trey, you told me, you know, a half an hour ago that you know you have another client that wants to buy this stock. Well, I could I could sell you some, and now you have a trade, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was, you know, and so how did you make your money? Um, the, being the middleman, right? Yeah. So you take a a cut, exact commission, commission, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, let's just, not get into any illegal. I'm not right? getting into anything illegal. I just wanted people to understand gotcha. what what was going on at a at a Wall Street trading desk. Yeah, so not, I, not, I, I not know. You know, as as a young guy, you know, I was just listening and watching and learning from um, the other, you know, the senior traders and. Um, 
I had to be there early. The boss told me to be there at 6.30. I want you to, my first job, he said, I want you to go to, you know, take the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, USA Today, all the major newspapers, and I want you to cut out any of the, any important articles that you think could be impactful to the market today and make a packet for all of the people on our desk of the important news articles, right? And hand, put one on each person's desk. So I was very into the news yeah. and, and very into current events and, and um, and I liked doing that. So I was mm-hmm. there first, and, and uh, that got harder as my addiction started to kick in because being there early, you know, I, I was out late, and, and so getting there early was difficult, but I always was. Mm-hmm. Um, still have a passion for, you know, the news, uh, although the news today is not what the news was, you know, in 1993. <laughs> no. um, so, I'm, so I'm less focused on it. But, uh, um, yeah, I loved it. Loved it from day one. I loved the idea that... Uh, you know, there was money to be, na- to be made while I'm talking and building relationships with clients and um, giving them good information and, and helping them, um, you know, make money for their clients. Um, what wasn't working for me was being in Manhattan where uh, I had access to, you know, drugs and alcohol and um, I was being urged. I saw that the most successful guys were the ones that were out with their clients all the time. And so that was the path that I took as well. But, you know, I didn't have the off, at some point I didn't have the off switch. And so it was a couple of years into um, work in the city where uh, I woke up one morning um, and I uh, realized, it was the first morning ever that I'd missed work, I didn't make work. And, uh, and then I called my dad and I said, I think I need to get out of New York City. I didn't say I have a problem with drugs and alcohol, but uh, he likely heard mm-hmm. that or, or was watching that. <laughs> And he said, you know, you know, maybe you should move to San Francisco and go to work uh, at, at Hamburg and Quist, which was a company he had worked for when I was younger. And he still knew some of the guys. And, um, and, and he said, I said, why San Francisco? He goes, well, because you'll have to be at work at like four in the morning and you'll, you'll, you'll have to go to bed much earlier and you get out of work at one and, and the rhythm and the, and the culture and the environment's probably a little different. And he was right. And um, so I did. I moved to San Francisco and... Uh, 96. Wow. Um, Alone? Like, yes. Yeah, wow. But I met my first wife like two weeks before I left. Oh. I, was in, you know, I was in New York City. I was out with friends. I met her. I said, well, you know, you're great. You're amazing. But I'm moving to San Francisco. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that's too bad. Well, maybe we'll stay in touch. And then, you know, she came to visit. And then she came to visit for longer. And then she moved out there. And then we got married. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um so even through all this, you talked about losing the off switch. Do you, do you have any, it just kind of happened, right? You, you don't have any recollection of when that happened or when the dependence really kicked in? Yeah, I don't. Um, I, 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 if I had to, like, identify a time period, it was then. Yeah. It, it was, because, because in college, uh, I, I, I was, you know, drinking and using um, but always with other people and yeah. always in a group on a team and, and um, it, there was no consequences. Um, when you're trading, would you consider that, that a team as well? I do. The guys on the floor Definitely. on the floor you were with? Mm-hmm. Were you good? I got good. Yeah. I mean I did it for a long, I did it for a long time and, and Wall Street has a way of, of uh, you know guys who aren't good don't. I was also fortunate to work at really, really good companies mm-hmm. where, you know, 
uh, you know, people wanted to do business with Hambrick and Quist. Mm -hmm. People wanted to do business with Piper Jaffrey. People wanted to do business with Lazard. There's tons of Wall Street firms that people do not want to do business with, and it's much harder. So my, I, I had the benefit of being on good teams, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're playing second base for the Yanks, then Different. yeah, exactly. Then, then playing for, for the Baltimore, Red, yeah, or the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, no, just he's not a Red Sox fan. I know he's. We're Yankee fans. Yeah. He's not. I am. You're Yankee fan. He's okay, Yankee all, right, fan. all right, all right, just checking. We're just busting on the Red Sox. Okay. Exactly. Although, so you're in San uh, Francisco, and now you're married. Married, yep. And I'm getting. And listen, so so here's the thing, right? People talk about geographics. You hear like, oh, you can't do a geographic. You know, it worked for me for a while. You right. know, I was out there for six years, and for I'd say for most of that time period, if not all of it. I did not have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I was going to bed early. I, I didn't. I wasn't abstinent. I wasn't sober, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any problems either with drugs and alcohol. You were waking up for work. Yeah, I was waking up for work, and that's mm -hmm. where I. That's where I got into golf because I was getting out of work at like one thirty, and so every day I could go play golf uh, because there was nothing to do. You know, people weren't going to the bar. People weren't going. You know, the the client uh, entertainment. Um, you know, aspect of the job was more like, let's go play tennis, let's go for a hike, let's go, and which was which was great. And that was because of the stock market was on East Coast time. Correct. Right. Yes, so we opened at 6.30, we closed at 1. Yeah. And, um, you know, I could be in the car on the way to Tahoe, which was a three-hour drive, by like one fifteen, one twenty. you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was great. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. I loved San Francisco. Um, after 9-11, my wife said, you know, Trey, we have to move back to the East Coast immediately. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, no one's ever going to fly on planes ever. And all of our family's back East. And, you know, we had a young daughter. And, and you know, I had left H&Q, started a hedge fund of my own. It, um, it, was, uh, it was rocky. And um, I wasn't, I, I, in my mind, I was like, I, I can do this from anywhere. I don't need to be here in San Francisco. What I had forgotten about was, my problems with drugs and alcohol in on the East Coast in, in that New York City environment. Um, I didn't forget, but I didn't voice that opinion at the time when she yeah. said we need to move back. <laughs> and so we moved back to. So you just dropped this thing like you started your own hedge fund. Yeah, well, uh, well, making that's... money, making money in that first internet boom, trading stocks was so freaking easy. Yeah. And so I said, I, why do I need to work for a company? I can just do this myself. Wow. <laughs> But that's it was it was re well but but it was also very um kind of stupid and, <laughs> and and young you know i was 29 years old thinking that like you know i had figured Bravado. out exactly, i can do this exactly yeah. you know so um I, taught, yeah. I started a hedge fund and shut it down within 20 months in that time period the nasdaq was down 80 percent wow <laughs> So not good timing, you know, unless you're mm -hmm. a short seller, and, and right. I, which I wasn't. So mm -hmm. it didn't go well, but it fortunately ended quickly. And uh, in that time period, we moved back, moved to Darien. And I got a, a job with Piper Jaffrey in the city. And the thing about, though, this is I, I tell this I tell this part of my story is that within within, you know, a couple months of going back into the city for work and, and being in, in Manhattan, you know, the idea popped into my head. It's like, I wonder if some of those guys that I used to call and get things from are still, you know, still have the same phone numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And they did. <laughs> They're like, I haven't heard from you in six years. You know, mm -hmm. how you been? Yeah, let's meet. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I, it wasn't like, you know, facing the gutter on day one, but it was the start of a trend. Um, 
And then I like and, if it was a movie and you make that call, the people in the audience would be going, "Don't yeah, exactly, do it, exactly, don't do it, exactly." Don't do it. <laughs> and then the week after Christmas in two thousand and two, my son Teddy was born in in uh, in, in November of '02, and it was a month afterwards, and I had this terrible pain in my stomach, and um, I. I, I presumed it was related to drinks, to drinking and drugging, but I, I wasn't sure, and it just wasn't going away. And um, you know, I, I ended up driving myself to the hospital in the middle of the night down to Stanford Hospital. And within a couple of hours, I was on the operating table having my appendix removed. Ugh. And um, so, you know, no, no problem. People have their appendix removed all the mm-hmm. time, but it was the first time I was given opiate pain medication, and. Um, I sat there in that bed recovering, saying, yeah, I want more of that. I want more of that. I want more of that. And then, you know, they gave me 60 or 90 pills to take home with me and refills. And, um, you know, from that day that I I had surgery until the day six years later that I went to treatment, I never missed a day of taking opiate pain medication. Wow. So that was, um, was that in... Before or dur- during the whole opiate um, boom? Before. Just before. Yeah. But even then, to prescribe like 60, 90 pills for... We now know it's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Right, but well, it, was, it was state-of-the-art yeah. then. Kind right. Of, that was right, like right. best practice. My brother passed away from melanoma, and he was treated by the VA. And when we went to clean out his apartment, the bottles of Oxy... Like, and he wouldn't take it. Mm. So there was, like, ten huge bottles. There must have been, like, 300 <laughs> pills in each bottle. Yep. Um, my sister wanted to save them. I'm like, we're not saving them. No, no, no. No. You I better be careful where you get rid of them. I right? wanted to sell them. Yeah. No, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> you two chicken. I know. You'd sweat through all your clothes trying to sell some drugs. <laughs> yeah. So that that was the start of um, of an opiate addiction. And... Um, <sighs> Over appendicitis. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that today? About, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my opinion is, you know, uh, I wouldn't be where I'm, I wouldn't be sitting here with you guys today if that hadn't happened, you know. But about, I'm looking for a comment about the system that would prescribe that many pills for that kind of thing. Yeah, listen, it's, it's disgusting Mm -hmm. and it's, it's so sad Unfortunately, I'm not going to be the person to change it. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's not my mission. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I. But you, you're more than willing to tell your story about how you oh, sure. got got addicted. Oh, yeah. So that is, yeah, helping to change the sure. system. Sure, sure. If somebody's right? listening today and they, you know, <laughs> get 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 a, having a prescription or, uh, um, after a surgery, you know, you need might need one or two pills. Right. I've had surgeries in recovery yeah. where I need where I take you know opiate pain medication for about a day or two. Right. Knee surgery, you know. We have yeah. too. We and, both have. Yeah, right. And, and there comes, and I'm married to a woman who's in recovery, and she's mm-hmm. been the dispenser of my medication. Mm-hmm. And We've and it done comes that for each other. Right, exactly. And it comes to that. It comes. You get to that point where you say, "Okay, I know I can get away with saying I need one." But that's that's where you're going to cross over into and, the and you know it in your head exactly. Yeah. And there was a there was a time when I was in cancer treatment and I was sitting on the couch sobbing and she came in and go, "Did you take your medication today?" And I go, "No." And um, it was a little tiny little oxycotton pill. They're so small, but they're so powerful. It's yeah. 
So I popped it in my mouth, and I was like, 20 minutes later, I feel great. Let's right. go for a walk. Yeah. And, and that scared me. Yeah. Um, because it was so, the, the, the change in my attitude was so dramatic. So I told my cancer doc that. And, and he's like, well, what do you expect? That's the euphoric effect of the narcotic medication. I go, I know, that's what I'm telling you. And he had this blank look like he, he didn't know what you were talking about. That, yeah. that was dangerous to sure. me because sure. medication was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And they talk often about opiates. Um, the draw or the attraction is the euphoric effect. Because Tylenol or aspirin or acetaminophen is just as effective as squelching pain. Right. Mm -hmm. But you add that euphoric effect. And so as you progress, were you still feeling euphoria over all this six years? Did you say six years? Six years, years, yeah. I mean, or is just kind of maintaining? Yeah, I mean, here and there, right? I mean, I went went from, you know, taking, you know, 10 milligrams a day to, you know, 200. So. Um, part of it was maintenance. I'm sure there was mm-hmm. some euphoria somewhere along the way, um, mm-hmm. but but you know most of it was maintenance and and uh, you know I didn't things were going well professionally. Um, well, how did you get this medication? On the street. Did you? Yeah. I mean, once I stopped doctor shopping, I, I kind of like <laughs> wore out my wore out the people that I, I mean, and that I mean you know for a couple of years that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but then eventually I met a guy who was a pharmaceutical sales guy. So he, he sold them to me right out of his trunk of his car, you know, with the tinfoil on the top. And I wasn't worried about there being fentanyl in my mm-hmm. opiates, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody had even, I never heard the word fentanyl at that point. Right? Right. This is 2003 to 2008. Yeah, I think it, so, was, yeah. it was kind of, might, they might have fentanyl patches for... Patients and things, but I don't think it was on the street or anything. So I, um, you know, I I was kind of going along saying, yeah, this might be a problem, but you know, I, I, I'll deal with it someday. Tomorrow. Yeah, someday. And um, one morning on the way to work on the train, you know, I was nodding off. I'd taken some in the morning, like I always did, and. I had a um, a vision, um, maybe a, a dream vision of uh, my daughter, who was eight at the time, Brooke. Uh, I had a vision of her being early 20s, young woman, talking to some of her friends and telling them that she'd never really gotten to know her father well because he had died at a young age. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in treatment three weeks later. Wow, yeah. love that. Yeah, I heard that story before. It's yeah. powerful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it, it was, you know, it was, it was all coming to an end. I just didn't know it at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it was, all, I was being pushed in that direction to, to make a change. And, um, you know, my, uh, my, you still, you still have the same job? You're still, everything, going same, on? I did the same thing. I changed, Changed firms a few times. All right. Um, so yeah, things hadn't. And, and you weren't as. A, do you think you were as effective or not as effective? Well, unfortunately, I think I was as Reasonably, effective. Yeah, yeah, I think I was. I mean, you so know, I, I always. The thing about trading is you can keep track. You can look at a number at the end of the day, and you can say that's how much business I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and those numbers hadn't gone down. Wow. Well, you know. And by the way, I, I traded stocks for another eight years in recovery. So you were a functional oh, yeah. at, at the time. Sure. How'd you tell your wife that you wanted to go to treatment, or did your she wife? She kicked me out. She, oh, okay. she, I mean, listen, my, our marriage was was not going well, and I, I was not the husband that I wanted to be, and I was not the dad that I wanted to be to, to mm-hmm. my little kids, and I was, you know, out late, and, uh, and, um, she, you know, she eventually um, said, you know, you got to get out of here. You got to, you got to go. And um, when she kicked me out, I. Uh, Got my car. It was a Friday night. I um, drove into the city, um, met a guy, and then um, continued on down to my dad's house in New Jersey on the beach. And I got there probably two thirty, three in the morning. Not you know, and he certainly wasn't expecting me, and I didn't want to wake him up. So I sat. I lay down on the porch, or out screened in porch outside. And around five thirty, when he gets up, he came down the stairs and he probably looked out the front door and saw me there and then came out and um, and that was when uh, it was the first time I ever said I need help I said you know I, I, something's bad uh, something's wrong and I, I'm sick I need help and just then as, as I was as my dad was giving me a big hug which was meaningful because he never really gave me a big hug. He still today, like, shakes hands. He's a handshaker. He's Mm -hmm. like, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, just then the sun was coming up over my, like, right shoulder, and I could start to feel the warmth of the sun. And and, and and what I felt was, like, um, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out, you know. You you will be taken care of, Mm -hmm. which was, again, something that I had struggled to feel as a kid Mm. I was in you know so then from that moment to a week later I was and I was in treatment um that was the start of the recovery like literally on that porch right then with that sun coming up that was the start of the recovery wow right the light Mm -hmm. at the house yeah yeah (laughs) gotcha so yeah I went to treatment and um I remember the doctor told me Intake doctors said, listen, it's a pretty simple diagnosis. You have mm-hmm. the disease of addiction. Here's the bad news. There's no cure. Mm-hmm. You're going to have this for the rest of your life. Here's the good news. For someone in your position, you couldn't be in a better place. Uh, we've seen people like you for you know, 80 years. We've been, we've been teaching and counseling people like yourself for, for a long, long time. We can give you all the tools that you need, but the most important thing you need to know is that when you leave here, in 32 days, 33 days, whatever it is, you need to manage this disease on a daily basis because we're not going to cure you. We've never cured anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, for some reason, I listened. For some reason, that got you know. I, I, to this day, I remember. And um, and I and I kind of dove in uh, and was you know uh, had my ears open, my antenna up, my radar up. The most important thing that happened while I was in treatment was nothing that happened. On the campus of that treatment center, it was they took me to an AA meeting in New Canaan, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I walk into a meeting with a hundred people, some of whom I knew. I knew that guy from the train. I knew this guy from the golf club. I knew that guy from my my kid's soccer mm-hmm. team, and I was like, wow, you know, I I didn't know much about AA. There's a team. Yeah, exactly. I didn't I didn't have any preconceived notions about AA. I didn't know what it was. I mean, mm-hmm. I had heard of it, but I didn't, you know. But when I sat down there and listened to um, people talk, the way they talked, mm-hmm. 
first, first about the stuff they were admitting about what they had done. I was yeah. my jaw dropped, right? But then talking about their feelings and how they how they went about their recovery, like I was pretty locked in. I was so locked in that I was worried that I was joining a cult of some type. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you know that this was some type of scary cult that I was going to, you know, I, I had to be careful about, you know, how I, um, as much as I, as, as much as I was attracted to the language and to the recovery, I didn't want to be, um, you know, hoodwinked. Right. right. <laughs> no, no. But that no was the most important thing that happened. Every morning they drove us over to the meeting, then they drove us back. And, 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 and the other thing was, you know, the fellowship and the community that I felt in that house that I lived in for 33 days and the fact that there was you know 12 or 13 other guys that had similar stories to me I was like wow okay so I'm not the only guy that was a screw-up and had this problem because mm-hmm. I thought felt pretty alone on the trading desk right mm-hmm. I felt like nobody's doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how I'm gonna get out of it too oh wow there's all these other guys and, and um, they have families they have kids they have jobs they have, you know um, they're normal <laughs> They're normal people mm-hmm. with the same problem that mm-hmm. I have. And so that power of identification was huge for me early on. Um, and the thing that I learned there was that, you know, uh, you got to you gotta um, just have your guard up. You got to stick with the winners. You got to figure out, you know, what works for you in your recovery and do it, right? Because you're not going to – nobody gets sober on the couch. And mm-hmm. – um, you know, while I was there, again, my wife invited me not to move home. Uh, I went to my counselor. I said, I need to figure out where I'm going to live. She said, go live in a sober house. I said, that sounds great. Give me the phone number. And she goes, well, you should probably go to Florida or California. And I said, why would I do that? And my job's here. My family's here. And she said, because there's nothing here for you. You know, there's, 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 there's homeless shelters. There's uh, halfway houses, but no place where you're going to identify and feel comfortable. So our recommendation is you go to Florida or California for 90 days and then come back. And I'm like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I didn't, didn't do that. I rented a house in New Canaan. I stayed close to Silver Hill and to that meeting that I had been introduced to. And um, what happened was, this was also the fall of 2008. So think, you know, the, mm. ep- the, like, like the peak of the financial crisis. So, um, you know, I'm... I'm theoretically very worried about my job. Uh, I'm worried about my marriage, which ultimately ended quickly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about you know, my, my kids and how am I going to be a dad and how am I going to do all this stuff? Um, and I went to uh, meetings in there in New Canaan and, you know, I said, I live, I, I work in the city and the guy would come up to me and say, if you work in the city, you should go meet my buddy Tom. He goes to, you know, this meeting at that time. And I'd go, what do I have to lose, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I go meet Tom and Tom's got good friends too. And then Tom says, hey, you should meet Pete. And Pete, Pete, you know, knows two other buddies. And next thing I know, next thing I know, I've got this community of guys that don't drink and don't take drugs and that like, you know, are, are happy about it. Mm-hmm. And that they're, they're, they're doing what I do. And um, it was a game changer. I, I, like, I think the most transformative time of my life was the day that I walked out of that treatment center to fast forward 90 days. And the people that I met in that time frame are to even today some of them my favorite people in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys that taught me how to do life, how to do recovery, how to live, you know, and, 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 you know, be a good, be a good guy, not just not pick up a drink or a drug, but like, you know, what's the program for life? (laughs) And I met, I met most of those guys in my first 90 days. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I got divorced, I made it through the financial crisis, um, and, you know, started being the dad I wanted to be, and, and, um, and you know, getting back to things I love to do, like skiing and golfing and, you know, Yankee games. And, you know, I didn't love, and Tim Walsh, tell, you know, our friend Tim Walsh tells this great story about his recovery when he was like, you know, I know I need to do this, and I love this, this message that I'm getting here in AA, but... I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a church basement, so let's mm-hmm. take it outside, right? right. Mm-hmm. And I identify with that because mm-hmm. um, my thought was like, oh, you know, I, I really want to go back to Yankee Stadium and, and watch watch my team, but that's been, a, you know, for the last couple of years, been just a big bar for me. And um, I ended up going to my first game with a bunch of other guys in recovery. And today, that's still the people who I would choose to go with, mm-hmm. you know, is do things I love to do, with other people uh, who are walking the same path, walking the same road. Um, and so that was early recovery for me, right? Like, bunch of meetings. I love the fact that AA exists everywhere. You know, I traveled a lot for work, West Coast, um, Europe, Florida. And everywhere I went, people were like, oh, call my friend Steve. You know, go to a meeting with him. Mm-hmm. Call my friend Dan. Mm-hmm. And, and that, for me, was like, wow, I have teammates everywhere. Yeah. I have this I have this organization that's going to support me wherever I'm at. And that was that was huge for me. Huge for me. Um and and uh and so yeah, it's been stayed a part of my life obviously, but um I lis- I listened to you. I mean, you know, I didn't Phil Valentine didn't come on my radar until 2015, but um you know, your your message and talk about uh, recovery versus 12 steps resonates greatly with me. Mm-hmm. And, and because, you know, um, there's tons of different ways to get sober and to do this, you know. And, I, and, and by the way, at year like four or five, I would have told you uh, as like, you know, an AA guy that like if there's a guy that comes in here and he hangs around for a while and then he leaves, like he's dead. Right. He's nice. He's going to be on the street, like right. you know. Yeah. And I know today that's obviously not the case, mm-hmm. you know. And and um, that was always one of the interesting parts about twelve steps is that you would hear all the time that we've never heard anyone come back and say it got any better out <laughs> yeah. there. And my whole well, if they came back, why would they ever come back and say that it has? Right. Because it got better. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of. Um, and there's been many people now that we've seen that drift away from meetings, but even Bill Wilson himself said AA was a spiritual kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And then where you take your foundation is completely up to you. And But the rooms are always there. If you want to go back, you know, um, um, I don't go to hardly any meetings anymore, but it's not because I don't want to or wouldn't go or anti-AA I love when I sit in when I do go and I sit in the room I just go (sighs) yeah and everything just is off that it's like I'm home Mm -hmm. you know that these are my people these are you're listening to the same things are still inspiring some people might irritate me a little more when they go off on their talking more about their sickness and their wellness but sure Hey, that's all part of it. It's okay, you know. I think for me, what I've seen now, 
you know, five years into working with people in early recovery is that the importance of AA is just the fact that it's always there, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that there's meetings everywhere, that there's people getting together in the morning, at lunch, in the evening. And so, you know, if you want to be around other people who are walking this path, Mm-hmm. It's the easiest way to find them. You can choose your dose, too. Right. Sure, exactly. Uh, Three yeah. a day, one a day, <laughs> one a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. You choose your dose. Yeah. And and that's a lot of times you hear, hear other people in AA prescribe your dose for you. This is what you need to do, Trey. You, you're so bad, you need to go to five meetings right. a day. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember when you came down to um, the lighthouse two years ago and spoke with our community, and and you told the story, just about how like you know AA is the only organization or or or, or you know community where you know you're going to have two people achieving the same goal and pointing the finger at each other, saying you did it wrong, you, right. know, you did it wrong, right, <laughs> or something to that. No, effect. that was uh, climbing the mountain and getting to the top and. One might have worked AA and one might have worked NA, and they're both in recovery, and they look at each other and say, you did it the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. You came up the mountain the wrong way. (laughs) Right. But we do that a lot in in recovery, and I'm very open to, especially, and Sandy works with the recovery community at the collegiate level to hear how people maintain and sustain recovery. It's fascinating. They're coming up with ways that... uh, Sure. I was like, wow. And important. Yeah. It's huge. Because, listen, there's I, I get a lot of phone calls from people that say, like, you know, I need help. I, I know this isn't working for me. But don't tell me to go to AA because I'm not doing it. Give, yeah. me, give me anything else. Yeah. Right. You know, give me anything else. Um, and why do you think, what is that whole anti-AA sentiment? What's that about, usually? It's part stigma, and it's part, you know, I mean, Bill White just wrote a piece recently mm-hmm. that referenced the idea that, you know, the identification of people being connected to a church is mm-hmm. gone, you know, from when AA started in the 30s, I think 75% of Americans were members of a church. Mm-hmm. And today, I think the number's like 40%. Mm-hmm. And so there's less interest in being um, God-driven and mm-hmm. and higher or higher power-driven, so mm-hmm. I think that, that that's a big reason why people are less interested in AA. And I still think that there's stigma around AA that mm-hmm. you know I, I don't want to do I don't want to be in a circle with these chairs and you, you know. So that that's what that was. If I had to guess, that's why the uh, appeal or the, you know the yeah the appeal of AA is. So when you guys, weakened, you were say? I was gonna say, I just think the coolest thing is when you blend a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like it's your perfect blend. Right, your tapestry of recovery. Yes. Um, so when guys come to you or women come to the lighthouse, are they expected to work a specific program of recovery? No. Okay. So the rule is, if you're living with us in one of our sober living homes, mm-hmm. you have to be. Um, you can't drink and you can't take drugs that aren't prescribed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly can take drugs that are prescribed to you. We're going to hold them for you and we're going to mm-hmm. um, oversee that. But uh, um, you have to be working a self-directed program of recovery. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big tent, right? That's a big, big tent. And we've had people... Well, my program of recovery includes cannabis, yeah, that's, that, that you can do on a non-residential basis in our 365 coaching program. Okay. But not in the house. Gotcha. Um, 
and um, and in fact, you know, so in our coaching program, we have clients, you know, and this this comes right out of your playbook. Like the mm-hmm. coach says, "What does recovery look like right. for you, yeah. and how can I help you achieve that goal?" Mm-hmm. And they might say, "Well, listen, my recovery goal is to be able to have a glass of wine with my wife on Saturday night at dinner." Mm-hmm. Great, let's go for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's <gasps> and we're off. That's like heresy. You can't be saying that. Well, well, well again, five years ago, I would have told you the same thing. That's, you're not sober, right? <laughs> right? But if that's what that person's recovery well, goal we'll is, see how it works. Too. Exactly. I'm very curious. Exactly. I'm very yeah, curious that's, to that's, see how that works. That's the thing. If it doesn't work, you have at least options. open to other options. Right. 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 Exactly. Well, obviously, so you're glass of wine on Saturday night hasn't worked out too well. What do you want to try next? <laughs> or maybe it has. Or and that's the, sc- I think that's the scarier thing for, for people is that, yeah. wow, you're telling me that you figured out a way to have one glass of wine? Yeah. Like, tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Right. And it, it, for me, it's just to me, I, I'm not convinced that I could do that. And I no. don't even, I don't want to toy with that idea because I think that's, Dangerous for me, but that might not be dangerous for the Correct. person we're talking to. Correct. Correct. And, right. and, and 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 it's all. And having that coach is, um, you know, you can't do. You can't make these decisions in a vacuum by yourself, right? You need right. to have someone that you're talking this through with, who that mm-hmm. can be that mirror that you talk about. Yeah. And can say, well, you know, you said it worked out for you, but what about that fight that you got in with your family, <laughs> yeah. you know, the next morning? Was that related to the one glass of wine that you had or not, <laughs> right. you know? And um, so as long as you're working with somebody else other than yourself, and, yeah. uh, the, the exploration process can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm like you. I, I'm, I'm not interested in exploring because it doesn't matter to me. Right? It doesn't, and in fact, you know, I love my, I love my community, my team so much today that why would I do anything that would jeopardize right. me not being part of that team, mm. part of that crew? Yeah, and if I picked up today, I would probably more than likely. Um, put my CCAR team in jeopardy, or at least my relationship with the sure. CCAR team. I was, wouldn't say I put them in jeopardy. Uh, relationship with my family, relationship with everything I've built. So it's just not worth it no. to me. It's not worth it. And because I found other ways to, you know, find joy. I don't, I don't need alcohol or drugs to party anymore. <laughs> right, right, or right, to, right, right. To fi- find fun or my sponsor talks about finding awe, A-W-E, every day in something. Mm. And I was sharing, um, oh, we had a little leadership retreat yesterday that I was walking with a, a high school buddy. Um, so I've known him for 45 years. We're walking in the woods, and it was after one of the big storms recently, and these acorns had fallen on the trip path, and they were bright almost fluorescent green with green caps. And I was actually in awe of the color of these acorns that were on the path. And I showed him, look at the color. He goes, wow. And he was like, well, he was really excited too. So, I mean, it's just. Well, we all get our highs in different ways. It's, it's stupid little things. but well, it's, it's a spiritual connection with squirrels. So that's probably what drove that. All, all kinds of things. So we jumped pretty big yeah, from yeah. you, like. Where do you want to go back? To? How did <laughs> how did you go from the financial district to the lighthouse? Um, 
So my job, you know, from from 2012 started getting um, less appealing, mostly because the company that I worked for uh, sold the division that I worked for to a different company. And I showed up one day for work and they go, you don't work here anymore. You work over there. Oh. And I go, I don't really want to work over there. I don't know those people. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, sorry, you don't work here anymore. That's, you got to go work there. And, um, and so I did, but I never, I did, I had a bad attitude about it. And it was, it was the start of the last chapter mm-hmm. for, for my financial career. And during that time period, a company opened up in New York City called Serenity, which billed themselves as high-end sober living for executives. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. And I, I, I'd stayed close to the treatment center where I had gone. Um, and I was, you know, volunteering over there and talking to some of the uh, patients. And, and it seemed that there was a lot of them that were heading to Serenity. And so what it became apparent was that, that Serenity was filling that void, that gap that I needed than di- and didn't have when I was mm-hmm. leaving treatment. And so I watched this company go from one uh, property in, in Chelsea to six properties all around Manhattan, men's houses, women's houses, in about you know two years. And I was like, wow, there's a business there. And um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that need you know residential support and want it at a certain level. Uh, and I, didn't, I hadn't realized how big it was. And that's when my, the, my eyes were opened to... Um, the treatment world and and the uh, after you know treatment is a business right um, mm-hmm. nonprofits for profits and I started to dig in a little bit on on and and by the by the way I had a lot of time on my hands because trading used to be very active and and um, and you know yelling and screaming and two phones to your ears like you like you think of in the movies to mm-hmm. you know by 2012 we were all sitting on a row of desks just typing to our clients, right? So no one's talking to each other. It's like a library. <laughs> really? Yeah, totally. And, oh. and, and not, my, not what I was into at all. Oh. Um, and then I started looking at sober living because, and, and trying to understand, you know, the, the laws, like, like where, how, how does this work? Can I do this? Do you need a permit? Do you need a license? Do you need a, you know, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And, and the more I dug into it, the more I realized you don't need anything. <laughs> no. You can do this anywhere. And, um, so then I said, you know, we should, I started having this idea that we should do a, a really cool, comfortable, sober living home in Fairfield County, you know, Darien, New Canaan. And my mm-hmm. thought was that everybody that was coming out of that treatment center where I went would need to come to us, or at least a bunch of them, like, mm-hmm. would need to come to me. And then I got, you know, finally got uh, tapped on the shoulder in 2015. And they said, we don't need you here anymore. Um, you can go home now. And so I wasn't expecting it, but I was relieved. And the next morning I got in the car, I drove over to that treatment center. I picked up a crew of guys that were patients there. I took them to that meeting that I had first gone to. And the guy in my front seat, in the front seat next to me, I can't remember his name. It was Mike, maybe it was Eric. He said, well, what's going on? I said, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm really nervous. And I said, what are you nervous about? He said, I'm leaving today. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going home to Cleveland. And I said, so why are you nervous? He goes, I don't know anybody who's sober or in recovery back there. And he goes, I feel really comfortable here. I love this meeting. I love the people that I've met. And I, frankly, I don't really want to leave. And, I, and that was, you know, I believe now, like, you know, my higher power just saying, you got to do this. And so I, I, um, I, I circled up a, a couple other guys that I knew that had similar backgrounds, um, Jim Hodell, Tony Canary, and said, you know, here's my idea. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. 
and we rented a house in Darien. It was, you know, eight bedrooms, six bedrooms, whatever it was. It was a big old house in Darien. And the idea was you come live with us. Um, you go back to work. You start seeing your family. You have your car. You have your computer. You're, you know, it's not treatment. It's, it's sober living. Um, and we surround you with really good, talented, sober guys that can show you and help you and support you early on. And that was when you came on my radar because mm -hmm. the idea of having coaches working with our clients was, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, that's, that's, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Got to do that. You know, mm -hmm. so we sent all these early employees up to do the, mm -hmm. the, the recovery coach Academy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that's, you know, we have clients that, you know, have worked with a coach, you know, for years wow. because of, uh, you know, yeah, uh, we, us sending our guys to you, you training them and then, you know, moving forward. Perfecting um, their art of coaching. Yeah. 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 Um, but early on it was just like, let's get a great chef that makes a good dinner. You know, we'll, we'll have a great, you know, it'll be a comfortable, you know, I wanted it to be a place where people walked in and said, and looked around and said, yeah, I want to be here. Because yeah. if you if you don't I mean, these are these are people in general that don't need to come live there. They can go rent an apartment on their own mm -hmm. if their you know wives invite them not to move home. They can go <laughs> live in one of their other three houses, right? But the you had you know doing early recovery on your own we've seen be really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So to be to put yourself in a position where you can be part of a team um, has been helpful. Yeah. And then you know we've kind of just gone from there where we you know we've got you know I met Cindy Shaw. And she um, is an awesome coach and can help supervise and train our coaches and, and just sort of, you know, be in charge of all the client care. And then we opened a women's house last year um, because we kept hearing that, you know, women need your support just as much as guys do. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's great, but I can't run the women's house. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to have a women's team. And, and that, that came together as well. Um, and, uh, and our 365 program, you know, which is our coaching program, which is embedded in the homes, but also we kept hearing from clients like, I want to do this when I leave here. Mm -hmm. And so we said, great, we can do that. And so now we have coaching clients in Long Island, in Man Manhattan, in Westchester, in Connecticut. Cool. And, they, and the ones that are close enough use the Lighthouse as their clubhouse, as their recovery community center, right? Um, and they come over on Tuesday for a dinner and, and, and a speaker. They come over on Wednesday for a men's group and mm -hmm. and, and a dinner and, or Sunday for, what, for whatever. I got a Tuesday coming up, don't I? You're coming on uh, Thursday. We're making a whole special event for you. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, don't build up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thursday the 16th, Phil Valentine live at the Lighthouse. Gotcha. <laughs> Did you know that? No, you're coming. Am I? Yeah. Oh, if you can. It's make all men. It. You no, 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 no. No, we're doing co-ed. Oh, She's got okay. class on Thursday. You got oh, class. Oh God. Um, you do. I know that's disappointing. <laughs> so, what are the plans for the lighthouse? What What do you got in the future? Um, we think that there's that 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 our our model, you know, uh, has applicability in other in other geographies mm -hmm. um, but it's really all about the people right it's really all about you know you, if you don't have the right people in in Long Island or in, in Westchester it's gonna be a massive failure so for for uh, 
I think that the the idea, the longer term plan is to um, to continue to grow, continue to focus on the tri-state area, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know build our residential homes that double as recovery clubhouses. Yeah, I love it. Right? So, like, mm-hmm. every, you know, we have a resident that, that's there now, and he's been, only been there a couple of weeks, and he said, you know, Trey, the best thing about this place is the, is all of the random guys that walk in that front door who, you know, don't live here. I'm not even sure who they are, but they are positive influences on this environment, on this community, and mm-hmm. that... He goes, that is something that you didn't tell me about when you were telling me about this place. Mm-hmm. But, but he, goes, he goes, from where I sit right now, that's been the most important aspect of this. And um, that's what we want to keep doing, right? But that's what we, we want to introduce guys who are new and women that are new to people that have been doing it for a long time because we firmly believe in that peer-to-peer model, mm-hmm. right? That peer-to-peer model. Like our, our clients want to learn from people that have been there and done that. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, not from a professor. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship with a clinician, and I don't know how to describe this verbally so I can get it on, it's like this, right? Mm-hmm. The peer-to-peer model where, where we can talk and sit at even, um, at even, uh, we're, we're equals, mm-hmm. it's just so much more impactful we've yeah. found. Yeah. Um, and the newcomer does just as much for the person in long-term recovery as... The person long-term recovery does for the newcomer. Yes. Um, that's more, in my mind, that's more 12-step based. Mm-hmm. Of a 12-step idea. And and we're super careful not to um, bill ourselves as a 12-step place. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, you, you know, we want we want people to be open. What I, tell, what I tell a client that's a prospect that's asking me questions and if they ask me, do I have to go to meetings? I say, no, you don't have to go to meetings. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do, you don't have to go to meetings. I said, if you don't go to meetings, I'd say, you'll be in the minority. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say 85%, 80, 90% of our clients do go to meetings and they enjoy it. Um, but you don't have to go to meetings. And it's not mm-hmm. a requirement for membership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Just to, to go to meetings. But so, one more thing we can't. We can't wrap without going into this. Uh, you've expanded your family. Yes. And I have the privilege of seeing some pictures of some really cute little ones. Yeah. So, met a woman, um, and uh, we got married, and and we have two two kids. Tucker's almost five, and mm-hmm. Madeline's two, and um, you know my older ones, that eight year old. That eight-year-old, uh, that eight-year-old girl is twenty-one. <laughs> gotcha. And, yeah. you're 13, and you're thirteen years in recovery. Yep. And yeah. Teddy's eighteen, and so um, yeah, it's uh, so two in college this year for the first time. Yes. Teddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Teddy's at Wake. Brooks at Middlebury. Um, and uh, and Tucker and Madeline are at the. Or, or in pre, pre- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hey, we get that. Yeah. We get that. We've we've done that. Our range is what's Colleen? She we're be, sixteen to be, almost thirty-four. Really? That's yeah. our range. We have an eighteen-year range. Thirty-four. Wow. He did the first one without me. Right, and then <laughs> so we have from Josh just turned twenty-seven. Seven. Yeah. And Mary's sixteen, so we have four kids over eleven years, roughly. 
And two grandkids, so. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, families, you know, it, it's an important mm-hmm. topic. Um, but I've, I've, been, I've had the privilege of being able to have, you know, we've had approximately 250 clients at the Lighthouse in the last five years, and I get to know them, and I get to, and, and I'm always super curious, like you guys are, about their family. Like, mm-hmm. what is it? What was it like growing up, and what, you know, what produced you? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm pretty cognizant of how, you know, things I do and don't do affect my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. We are too. And, but then I've also come to the conclusion: the things we think were tragic errors on our part are easily dismissed and then something you said offhand <laughs> they'll end up in counseling over when right. they're 30 right. so right. 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 just do the best you can right yeah. whatever yeah. happens happens all yeah. we can do is love our job is to love our job is to love yeah i like that as parents that's yeah. all we can do love yeah. our children i see a lot of clients that come through that um may have been over supported over you know parented yeah um, that's that love that can be a struggle yeah yeah i actually started following a facebook group for parents of a particular college because our last one's about to go um another year and she's looking at schools and the anxiety of the parents over moving yeah and and two three weeks into moving and they're like, how do you bunk the beds? And they ran out of forks in the dining hall last right, night. Right. And I'm like, I was getting anxiety. And I was like, folks, like, if you have a senior in high school right now, finish raising them. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> when they get to college, like, let them go. If you they can't let figure out how to find that fork, then you've done something wrong. I'm in some of those Facebook groups, too, and, and I've had the same reaction. Isn't it anxiety-provoking just I, to I, see their anxiety? It's, so, it's upsetting. <laughs> I, I, I try not to read too much of it because it's, well, I'm not, it's not going to end well for the kids. No. <laughs> well, Trey, thank you so much for taking the time, making the drive up to Hartford to sit in our little studio and thank share you your for story. Thank you um, really remarkable. Yeah, no. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for being, um, you know, for being as supportive and and helpful as as you guys have been. Um, I'm not sure. There's a people. There are people like yourself and Bill White in my life that like you know. I, it's more from the reading that I do mm-hmm. than the actual connection to one on one. But it's you know it has shaped who I am today and what the right. lighthouse is today. Good. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone. Look at you. You're all energized now. Yeah.
Because you like you liked my vulnerability about the last piece, or what? No, it's because somebody bought me a present. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, let's keep it simple. 